Over to you, Gordon. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Um, so people, uh, sounds like in this audience, know me by what I've written about evidence-based medicine. Um, what you may not know about me is that um, the process started um, in when I took over as director of the internal medicine residency program at McMaster in 1990, and that's where my story of today will start. Um, and I still do clinical practice as a hospital-based general internist, and I've just come off two weeks on clinical service, so still at it. So um, the topic is how should we teach evidence-based medicine in the 21st century? Conflict of interest, I'm, and you're going to hear about GRADE, and I'm co-chair of the GRADE working group. Um, there may be something in this um, that indirectly uh, uh, refers to up to date, uh, not directly, I don't think, but at any rate, I've done a lot of consulting work with up to date. The, for any of you who want to take a slower review of what I'm going to cover, um, everything in this talk, um, I think, all works is in the article about understanding results, evidence summaries, applicability, not critical appraisal, or the core skills of the medical curriculum. That's the point I'm going to try and make. Kari Tikhan and I published a paper making that case in BMJ EBM in 2020. So in a relatively short period of time, I'm going to talk about critical appraisal before evidence-based medicine evidence-based medicine at the start, its evolution, and the implications for evidence-based medicine education. And I'm going to identify what I think are three challenges for evidence-based medicine ed education. One, clinicians must understand the results. I'm convinced that that is the case. Clinicians must understand grade. Uh, I have confessed my conflict of interest as far as that is concerned, um, but in a more general sense, perhaps, they must understand the uh, concept of quality and certainty of evidence and be able to apply it. And thirdly, uh, the underappreciated aspect of evidence-based medicine, even though it's more than 20 years since we've been highlighting that EBM is all about patient values and preferences. Some folks still don't get it. Um, and challenge three, completely consistent. In fact, at the heart of EBM is that we must teach clinicians to understand the importance of patient values and preferences. So this is Dave Sackett. He was my mentor. And in uh, 1981, he published a very influential uh, series that looked at critical appraisal of the medical literature, which started with an article about how to read clinical journals, why to read them, and how to start reading them critically. And this is what uh, he started out. Uh, a little later, I'm not sure he would have, well, I'm sure he wouldn't have agreed necessarily to all of these, but he said, look at the title, interesting or useful. That's probably a good one. Review the authors, good track record. That's probably not such a good one. Read the summary. If valid, would these results be useful? Pretty good. Consider the site. If valid, would these results apply to your practice? Eh, maybe. But then 
what was the focus after that? Well, if it was a diagnostic test, look whether there was an independent blind comparison to learn about the prognosis. Was there an exceptional cohort? Etiology or causation, which we've sort of uh, abandoned as a specific character uh, characterization. What are the basic methods? And to distinguish useful from useless or even harmful therapy, was the assignment of patients really randomized? Risk of bias criteria. So the focus was risk of bias criteria. And then if the initial was met, read the patients and methods section. Nothing here about the results. The focus is on what we now think of as risk of bias. So that was critical appraisal. And then in 1990, when I took over the uh, residency program in internal medicine, I had a vision of what I wanted to teach people. And I thought, I need to call this something. Come to McMaster to learn a particular approach to medicine, which is evidence-based medicine. And this is the first article that appeared uh, about with using the term evidence-based medicine in the medical literature in 1991. And just to tell you, that's what I looked like in 1991 when that was published. Sadly, very different from how I look now. So I started this internal medicine residency program, and it was essentially a laboratory for EBM education. And my initial goal was every graduate would be able to read the methods and results. I was trained by Dave Sackett, and uh, I was very familiar with the initial reader's guides to the medical literature. I was aware of the importance of what we then called validity, which we now call risk of bias. However, at the end of seven years running this program, I had observed some distressing findings. Very few of the residents, despite my best efforts, who finished my program were able to appraise the methods and concluded that the advice in the CMAJ uh, series that Dave led, while a brilliant uh, innovation at the time and crucial to the development of what eventually became evidence-based medicine, in its focus on validity or risk of bias, was misguided. And so we wanted to get the word out. So I finished uh, uh, the res my residency program directorship in 1997. And in 2007, sorry, in 2000, we published this article in the BMJ, which made the case that critical appraisal was not for everybody. In fact, critical appraisal was for very few that it was not realistic to ask clinicians to find and appraise the results. Learning EBM skills, if by what EBM skills one means critical appraisal and risk of bias, is not the best way to achieve evidence-based practice. Few will have the training. Those who do, including me, often won't have the time. I still, I, as you see, will do often what other clinicians do, which is not to look carefully at the literature myself or even critically appraise the literature summaries. At the time, 
in 2000 when we wrote this, what was our alternative to learning EBM skills and being able to critical appraise? It was pre-appraised systematic reviews. Well, maybe, but 22 years later, we'd actually make another suggestion about what the alternative is. So the implications for uh, education is that the goal is not critical appraisal of the primary studies, nor there's critical appraisal criteria for systematic reviews, the structured clinical question, the comprehensive search and so on. That's not the business of the clinicians either. We still teach it, I still teach it, but I don't teach it with the expectation that anybody's gonna remember any of those details. And if you try it, I would predict that after a little while, when you ask your, your clinicians who've been through one of your courses about what they remember about concealment of allocation, blinding and loss to follow up, it will be very little. So I don't teach that so that they can do it themselves. They're not going to. They can do it only so that they have an appreciation that there is a process that is legitimate um, that is logical, um, that is trustworthy. There is a process that allows the identification of high, moderate, low, and very low quality evidence. And so at the end, when somebody tells them this is high, moderate, low, or very low quality evidence, they say, well, I can't do that myself, but I remember that there is a structured and, and trustworthy process of making these uh, characterizations of the quality of the evidence. But they still have to understand the results. They have to understand the results because our interventions come with benefits and with burdens and harms. And in particular, some of us believe that it should be the patient's values and preferences that bear on the issue. And to do shared decision-making, you need to understand. So, do clinicians currently understand the results? We did a study um, uh, in which we took uh, a survey, survey in eight countries of uh, uh, primary and internal medicine uh, physicians in training who came to their rounds, and we presented them with six ways of presenting continuous variables. Standardized mean difference, mean difference, ratio of means, minimally important different units, relative and absolute effects. So we start out continuous variables, which can be appropriately modified to prevent, present relative and absolute effects. So they were attending teaching sessions, Canada, Chile, uh, Norway, Spain, Lebanon, US, Switzerland, and Finland. Because we had a captive audience, 87% completed the survey. So they were randomly assigned one of four versions of the questionnaire. They either had small or large effects and the six measures were either presented in order one to six or six to one. And then we tested their understanding of whether the effect was trivial, small, moderate or large. Here was their understanding. Not surprisingly, we, we predicted this in advance, Risk difference was the one they understood best. Relative risk next, next ratio of mean, standardized mean difference, 
minimally important difference and the natural units of the instrument were last. So that's what we anticipated. What we didn't anticipate is that even with risk difference, the one they did best, it was awful. Only 40% of them got what we thought was the right answer in terms of the effect, trivial, small, moderate, or large. This was, I found this quite distressing, and this hastened my, I don't, I was already obviously since 2000 moving toward a focus on understanding results. This shifted me further. This shifted me to say, understanding results are what's important. I should be spending even less time on the critical appraisal and more time helping clinicians learn to understand the results. So, but my experience to date, we said it in 2000, is that most EBM teachers have not got the message. They still think that clinicians are going to go out and do critical appraisal. And our first challenge, I think, my I, I perceive our first challenge is to get EBM teachers to accept reality. Most clinicians will seldom or ever do critical appraisal. But they will still be making decisions and hopefully doing that in process of shared decision making with their patients. They'll be counseling patients. And our study suggests they can interpret the results to do that well. So we need to get EBM teachers to understand the implications, markedly de-emphasize critical appraisal, markedly emphasize understanding the results. When will we be successful? When we repeat that survey I told you about, and at least with respect to relative risk and risk difference, maybe some of the others, clinicians can actually understand the results. That will be progress. So um, next thing I will tell you or remind you, if you already know, a little bit about GRADE. So in 2004, um, we uh, published a paper in the BMJ that presented this process of looking at quality of evidence and strength of recommendations. And clinicians now in my neck of the woods, actually worldwide, I go worldwide and I say, at least in academic centers, who uses up to date and everybody, extraordinary number of people around the world are using up to date. Up to date has over 10,000 graded recommendations. They present the quality of the evidence and the strength of recommendations. A lot of people who use up-to-date uh, don't understand when up-to-date says a 1A or a 2C, uh, they don't understand what it means and they need to. They need to understand that ABC is high, moderate, and low quality evidence and one and two is strong and weak recommendations. So um, the next, uh, 2004, we published the first presentation of grade into BMJ and then we published a six-part series about um, grade for clinicians. If they see grade used, how to understand it. And we've been pretty successful. So over 110 organizations have adopted grade, include World Health Organization, prominent American organizations, American Thoracic Society, American College of Physicians, British NHS, Cochrane Collaboration, and both the two leading electronic, both up-to-date and Dynamed. So what are grades criteria? Confidence or certainty or quality of evidence, they're all synonyms. 
can be high, moderate, low, and very low. Randomized trials start as high, but they may be rated down by risk of bias, inconsistency, indirectness, imprecision, and publication bias. Observational studies start as low. They may go to very low because of those problems or typically because of large effects, things like insulin for diabetic ketoacidosis or hip replacement or dialysis do not need randomized trials to show to provide high quality evidence of benefit. So challenge number two, way back in 2000, we said clinicians look at systematic reviews. We don't tell clinicians to look at systematic reviews anymore. We tell them to look at trustworthy guidelines and we don't need to tell them. That is what they in fact are looking at. Good <laughs> guidelines present the quality of the evidence. Most good ones will be using grade. So our success with challenge two will be met when clinicians understand the quality or certainty of evidence synonyms and they understand the basics of the grade approach. Now, in terms of the third challenge, I'm going to tell you a story of a study done by PJ Devereux, who's now leading the world in terms of perioperative medicine, who way back did a study looking at values and preferences. He took patients with atrial fibrillation at high risk of stroke. Anticoagulation lessens the risk of stroke at the risk at the cost of more GI bleeds. He presented that without treatment, 100 patients will suffer 12 strokes six major and six minor, anticoagulation decreased strokes to four, and asked how many bleeds would you accept in 100 patients and still be willing to administer or take anticoagulants. And um, uh, if we were doing this interactively, I would ask you how many bleeds would you accept to prevent eight strokes in 100 patients? Five or fewer, six to 10, 11 to 15, six or 20, or more than 20? Think for just a few seconds, if you are a clinician, or even if you're not a clinician, how many bleeds would you be willing to accept to prevent eight strokes? Here's what happens when Dr. Adevaru asks physicians and patients. With respect to the uh, physicians, flat distribution. They went uh, over right from very few, under five, right up to a large number and across the whole range. Physicians' values and preferences in terms of stroke or bleeding aversion were very variable. The patients, the majority of patients overwhelmingly chose that they would be ready to accept 22 bleeds, two thirds of them to prevent eight strokes. The patients were much more stroke averse and much less bleeding averse than were clinicians. Although a few of the patients were at the other end, more like the clinicians, more bleeding averse. Messages is, if you use the clinician's values and preferences, you're going to get it wrong, at least in this case. If you much better to use the values and preferences of the majority of patients, but if you really want to get it right, you have to find out about individual patient values and preferences. So grade then says a strong recommendation would be when all or almost or fully informed patients would make the same choice. Interaction with the patient, strong recommendation. You can just inform the patients. Weak, you need to do shared decision-making. Shared decision-making can be aided by a decision aid, and you're only gonna use quality of care criteria for strong recommendations. So challenge number three, achieve shared decision-making when appropriate. 
clinicians and guideline developers need to understand two situations. Just do it. The strong recommendations, weak recommendations or conditional that are value and preference sensitive. Success will be achieved when clinicians do share decision making when appropriate. They understand the grade strong and weak recommendation. And when every guideline tells you what their underlying values and preferences are that drive the direction and strength of their recommendation. Thus, three challenges to teaching evidence-based medicine. First, get clinicians to understand the results, how to achieve it, teach guidelines, grades, and results, not critical appraisal. We will be successful when clinicians understand the guidelines that they are using. The clinicians all over the world are relying on guidelines in ways totally different than they did 20 years ago. But to understand guidelines, they need to understand the concepts of quality of evidence and strength of recommendations. We will be successful when clinical and guideline developers understand values and preferences and the clinicians who use those guidelines will understand it and apply it in shared decision making. So thanks very much for listening.